Blog Talk Radio. Mama 
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaki Tanda. Wawaka Yembe, Wena Menshi. Climate change will be uh, 
the topic also of these addresses, access to advanced medicine and economic uh, development. In addition, uh, other issues uh, impacting Africa and international community are also explored in detail uh, in the concluding section. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Tuned, uh, we'll take a musical interlude uh, and uh, we'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Okay. 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, October the 2nd, uh, 2021. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe, who just heard music uh, from the West African state of Ghana. Uh, We heard the Oreyewu International Band classic uh, music uh, from Ghana, and uh, we are here uh, broadcasting our regular uh, Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And we want to continue our coverage of the United Nations General Assembly 76th session. Uh, We're going to listen uh, to uh, representatives from the Caribbean Island Nation of Barbados. Uh, let's listen in. The Assembly will hear an address by Her Excellency Mia Amor Motley, Prime Minister, Minister for National Security and the Civil Service, and Minister for Finance, Economic Affairs and Investment of Barbados. May I request protocol to escort Her Excellency. I have great pleasure in welcoming Her Excellency Mia Amor Motley, Prime Minister, Minister for National Security and the Civil Service, and Minister for Finance, Economic Affairs and Investment of Barbados, and I invite her to address the General Assembly. Madam Prime Minister. Thank you very much, Madam Vice President. Um, Please permit me at the outset to congratulate the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, and the Deputy Secretary General, uh, Mina Mohamed, on their reappointment as to the post here and also to the election of the President for this 76th General Assembly. If I use the speech prepared for me to deliver today, it would be a repetition, a repetition of what you have heard from others and also from me. Equally, how many more times will we then have a situation 
where we say the same thing over and over and over to come to naught. My friends, we cannot do that anymore. And I ask simply that we recall that three years ago when I made my maiden speech, I indicated from this very podium and told the international community that the world appeared awfully similar to what it looked like a hundred years ago. Barbados made that position clear. Regrettably, we have not come to say we told you so, but we have come to say that the needle has not moved and that we have not seen sufficient action on behalf of the people of this world. I am not here, therefore, to keep you long today and shall be very, very brief. How many more variants of COVID-19 must arrive? How many more? Before a worldwide action plan for vaccinations will be implemented. How many more deaths must it take before 1.7 billion excess vaccines in the possession of the advanced countries of the world will be shared with those who have simply no access, no access to vaccines? How much more fake news will we allow to be spread without states defending the public digital space We have come together with alacrity to defend the right of states to tax across the digital space, but we are not prepared to come together with the same alacrity to defend the rights of our citizens to be duped by fake news in the same digital space. And how many more surges must there be before we ask when will the world take action? None are safe until all are safe. How many more times will we hear that? And how much more must we do, Madam Vice President, before the global moral strategic leadership that our world needs comes? How much more global temperature rise must there be before we end the burning of fossil fuels? And how much more must sea levels climb in small island developing states before those who profited from the stockpiling of greenhouse gases contribute to the loss and damage that they occasioned rather than asking us to crowd out the fiscal space that we have for development to cure the damage caused by the greed of others. And how many more hurricanes must destroy locusts devour and islands submerge before we recognize that a hundred billion dollars in adaptation is simply not even enough. The answer, Madam Vice President, is that we are waiting for urgent global moral strategic leadership. How many more crises must hit 
before we see an international system that stops dividing us and starts to lift us up how many more times must people come to this podium and speak about the plight of the people of Cuba and Haiti and see very little being done to lift the floor of social development to give those people the right to pursue legitimate ambitions how many more how many more crises and natural disasters before we see that all conventions of aid mean that assistance does not reach those who need it most and those who are most vulnerable and how much wealthier must tech firms get the top five tech firms have a market capitalization of 9.3 trillion I didn't say billion trillion dollars how much more wealthier must they get before we worry about the fact that so few of us have access to data and knowledge and that our children are being deprived of the tools that they need in order to be able to participate in online education the answer madam vice president is that we have the means to give every child on this planet a tablet and we have the means to give every adult a vaccine and we have the means to invest in protecting the most vulnerable on our planet from a changing climate but we choose not to it is not because we do not have enough it is because we do not have the will to distribute that which we have and it is also because regrettably the faceless few do not fear the consequences sufficiently how many more leaders must come to this podium and not be heard before they stop coming how many times must we address an empty hall of officials in an institution that was intended to be made for leaders to discuss with leaders the advancement necessary to prevent another great war or any of the other great challenges of our humanity how many more times will we stand idly by and see women of color and men of color and women period be attacked at the leadership of international organizations disproportionately and yes how many more times must the great needs be met simply by nice words and not have before us the opportunity to see the goodwill that is necessary to prevent nationalism and militarism the answer madam president is that this age dangerously resembles that of a century ago the time when we were on the eve of the great depression and a time when we fought a similar pandemic and a time when fascism and populism and nationalism led to the decimation of populations through actions that are too horrendous for us to even contemplate our world knows 
not what it is gambling with. And if we don't control this fire, it will burn us all down. As I said two years ago, this is not science fiction. We heard the Secretary General make the same comment on Tuesday morning. This is our reality. It is not science fiction. And if the truth be told, the Secretary General's speech said it all. But who will stand in here and support him to give him the mandate on our institutions, be it the WHO, the IMF, or the World Bank, or the regional development banks, or the development institutions? Who will give them the mandate to go forward if we continue to refuse to summon the political will to confront what we know we must confront. I ask us who in here will sign the new charter, a new charter for the 21st century that is appropriate for the, not the next 75 because the world in which we live moves too quickly. But let us try for the next 25 years to meet the needs of a 21st century not the needs of the middle of the 20th century on the aftermath of a world war that none of us can really relate to today. In the words of Robert Nestor Marley, who will get up and stand up? Who will get up and stand up for the rights of our people? Who will stand up in the name of all those who have died during this awful pandemic? The millions. Who will stand up in the name of all those who have died because of the climate crisis? Or who will stand up for the small island developing states who need 1.5 degrees to survive as we go to COP26? Who? Who will stand up? Not with a little token but with real progress. And who will stand up for all in our countries who remain and suffer the indignity of unemployment and underemployment and whose access to food is now compromised by increased food prices and increased transportation prices and transportation, quite frankly, that is being manipulated. It is not beyond us to solve this problem. If we can find the will to send people to the moon and solve male baldness, as I've said over and over, we can solve simple problems like letting our people eat at affordable prices and making sure that we have the transport. We have been told that democracy is what matters in our country and democracy is fundamentally an issue of the majority and numbers. But why don't we count who stands up in here? And why don't we take a reckoning for the numbers in here? My friends, it is against that background that I say to you, this is not 1945 with 50 countries. This is 2021 with many countries that did not exist in 1945 who must face their people and answer the needs of their people who want to know what is the relevance of an international community that only comes and does not listen to each other that only talks and will not talk with each other. It is against this background that I say that our voices must be heard 
and our voices must matter. And today, Barbados calls at this dangerous fork in the road that the nation states of this assembly and the people of this world must indicate what direction we want our world to go in and not leave it to the faceless few who have worked so hard to prevent the prosperity from being shared that is sufficient in this world from being shared with all of our people. I ask you today to support us because we will bring a resolution in plenary to endorse the approach of Antonio Guterres as Secretary General. When I met with him two days ago, I told him we share the same philosophy. We want the same destination. The only issue is what road we take and what are the obstacles in that road and what are the potholes we must overcome. My friends, I fear we leave anger in need of another anger. One with real engagement and one to secure real progress. That is what he called for on Tuesday. I regret that the token initiatives will not close the gap. On Monday morning, I said to the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom that I was a student in his country and that as we got off the train, there would be a pre-recorded message each time that simply said, mind the gap. Let us, my friends, not only mind the gap, but determine as a global community of nations that numbers matter and that we have the population and the member states to send the signal of the direction that we want our world to go in at this dangerous moment. And let us do so with the calm assurance that those who labor in great causes never ultimately fail, but we must summon the courage to do it. I ask us in the name of our people to find the global moral strategic leadership. Global because our problems are global. Moral because we must do the right thing. And strategic because we cannot solve every problem of the world, but we must solve those within our purview immediately. Thank you. I, on behalf of General Assembly, I wish to thank Her Excellency Mia Amor Motley, the Prime Minister, Minister for National Security and the Civil Service, and Minister for Finance, Economic Affairs and Investment of Barbados for her statement, and I request protocol to escort Her Excellency. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Prime Minister Motley of uh, Barbados, uh, Caribbean nation, uh, giving a uh, very interesting address uh, before uh, the United Nations uh, General Assembly, uh, 76th session, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, today is... Saturday, uh, October the 2nd, uh, 2021, and uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we want to move right now uh, to another address uh, from 
uh, the Republic of Cuba. Let's listen in. I now give the floor to the distinguished representative of Cuba to introduce an address by the head of state. Señor Presidente. President, I have the honor of introducing the statement, a pre-recorded statement of the President of the Republic of Cuba, Miguel Díaz-Canel Bermúdez. Señor Secretario General. Secretary General, Mr. President, we are living in uncertain times under the devastating impact of a pandemic which has sharpened the structural inequalities as well as the global crisis. The role of multilateralism and of the United Nations are increasingly important and international cooperation has been inadequate. The application of neoliberal formulas during decades has reduced the abilities of states to address the needs of their population the most vulnerable have remained without protection, while the richest nations, the elites, and uh, pharmaceutical transnationals are increasing their profits. Combining efforts and determination for the good of humankind is not only urgent today, it's also morally crucial. More than 4.5 million people have died as a result of the pandemic, which has worsened living conditions on the planet. Its consequences and impact uh, throughout all of our societies are incalculable, but already we know that they will not be short-lived. We can see this in the report on the Sustainable Development Goals of 2021, while the International Labor, or Labor Organization says that in 2022 there will be in the world 205 million unemployed persons. It's clear to all that uh, we have already seriously undermined the objective for sustainable development to eradicate poverty for 2030, a time when it is projected that the global poverty rate will be 7%, around 600 million people. In this bleak context, COVID-19 vaccines are the only hope. More than 5 billion doses have already been administered throughout the world by August 2021. However, more than 80% of those were applied in middle-income or high-income countries, and their populations represent much less than a half of the total population of the planet. Hundreds of millions of people in low-income countries are still awaiting for the first dose, and they don't even know when they will receive it. While this is happening, it is inconceivable that in 2020, a global military expenditure was almost two trillion U.S. dollars. How many lives would have been saved if those resources had been devoted to health or to the production and distribution of vaccines? The possible responses to this question involves a paradigm shift and to transform a deeply unequal and anti-democratic international order, which places selfishness and petty interests of a minority before the legitimate aspirations of millions of human beings. We will never tire of repeating that we must put an end to this waste and irrational capitalist consumption and production patterns, to environmental depredation, and to the factors that cause climate change, which threaten the existence of the human species. Our effort must be collective but developed countries have the moral obligation to assume the greatest responsibility because they're the ones who caused the current situation and they have the resources to correct it. 
we have to fight so that uh, solidarity, cooperation, and mutual respect will prevail if we want to provide an effective response to the needs and yearnings of all of those peoples and to preserve what is most valuable, human life and human dignity. Our peoples have the right to live in peace and security, to development, uh, to well-being, and to social justice. A United Nations, which is revitalized, democratized, and strengthened, is called upon to play a central role in this effort. Mr. President, under the leadership and with the ongoing incitement of the United States, we see a serious international rift being promoted with the harmful use and abuse of economic coercive measures, which has become a central instrument of U.S. foreign policy, the government of that country is threatening, extorting, and pressuring sovereign states to take a stand and to act against those who they identify as their adversaries. They demand that their allies build coalitions to overthrow legitimate governments. They default on trade commitments. They abandon and ban certain technologies, and they apply unjustified judicial measures against citizens of countries who don't bend to their will. They often use the term international community to define a small group of governments that accompany Washington's will without questioning it. The other countries, the vast majority of members of this organization, it seems that there is no room for us in the definition of international community, which is advocated by the United States. It is a behavior which is associated with cultural and ideological intolerance, with a, race, with a marked racist influence, and with hegemonic aims. It's not possible or acceptable that we identify the right to economic and technological development of a nation as a threat, as it's not possible to question the right of a state to develop a political, economic, social, and cultural system which is sovereignly chosen by its people. In other words, we are seeing today unacceptable political practices in the international context that go against the universal commitment to defend the United Nations Charter, including the sovereign right to self-determination. Independent and sovereign states are being subject to all kinds of pressure to bend to the will of Washington and to an order based on its capricious rules. Mr. President, for more than 60 years, the government of the United States has not refrained for one minute in its attacks against Cuba, but in this crucial and challenging moment for all nations, its aggressiveness has gone beyond the limits. The most cruel and the longest economic, commercial, and financial blockade which has ever been imposed on any country has intensified in an opportunistic and criminal fashion in the midst of this pandemic. And the current Democratic administration is maintaining without altering the 243 coercive measures adopted by the administration of Donald Trump, including adding Cuba to the spurious and immoral list of countries that allegedly sponsor terrorism. It's in this context uh, that uh, they're launching against our country an non-conventional war where the U.S. government has dedicated uh, publicly uh, millions of dollars through campaigns of, uh, to campaigns of lies and manipulation, which um, use uh, new information technologies and other digital platforms to project inside and outside the country 
a totally false uh, image of the Cuban reality, sowing confusion, uh, aiming to destabilize, to discredit the country, and to justify the regime change doctrine. They have done all this to wipe the Cuban revolution off the map. They don't accept alternatives to the model that they conceive of for their backyard. Their plan is perverse and incompatible with uh, the democracy and the freedom that they advocate. But our enemies must know clearly that we will not surrender the fatherland and the revolution that several generations of patriots have bequeathed to us. I'd like to reiterate today before the respected and real community of nations that every year has voted unanimously against the blockade. What was expressed a few years ago by General Raul Castro, and I quote, Cuba is not afraid of lies, nor will it kneel to pressure, conditions, or impositions, wherever they may come from. Mr. President, the colossal challenges do not intimidate us. We continue to build for Cuba. We uh, practice uh, selfless solidarity with those who, who uh, require support. And we are also grateful for what the support we receive from governments, peoples, friends, and the Cuban um, community um, outside of Cuba. I would like to thank all of those for their support uh, at the situation, people who extol the values of humankind and unconditional international cooperation. At the same time, in response to the requests received and guided by our uh, vocation of solidarity and humanism, Cuba has sent 4,900 assistants organized in 57 medical brigades to 40 countries and territories affected by COVID-19. Those dedicated uh, healthcare workers have not... Uh, uh, relented one minute in their fight against the pandemic inside and outside of Cuba. Um, they're the same ones who took to the streets to help the Haitian people after the devastating earthquake uh, just a few weeks ago, those who travel from a remote place to a Cuban province, province without stopping uh, to deliver their expertise and their knowledge uh, uh, in their mission to save lives. Uh, they're, most, they're more than daily heroes, uh, the pride of our nation and symbol of our vocation for justice. Uh, uh, Dozens of public figures and thousands of people have signed their candidacy for the Nobel Peace Prize. Likewise, we are proud of the uh, scientific Cuban community who, in the midst of uh, uh, great shortcomings, have uh, developed three vaccines and vaccine candidates against COVID-19. They represent the embodiment of the idea of the uh, commander-in-chief who uh, asserted that the future of our homeland must necessarily be a future of men and women of science. Thanks to the support of our men and women of science and healthcare workers, during the first 10 days of this month, more than 15.8 million doses of the Abdallah Soberana 02 and Soberana Plus vaccines have been administered, and 37.8 of the Cuban population is fully vaccinated. We expect to achieve full immunization by the end of 2021, which will make it possible for us to advance in the struggle against the new outbreak of the pandemic. Mr. President, we ratify our aspiration to achieve full independence of our America and to be a socially and economically integrated Latin American and Caribbean nation capable of um, living up to the commitment established in the Procl Proclamation of Latin America and the Caribbean as a zone of peace. 
in the face of attempts to reimpose the Monroe Doctrine and the neocolonial domination. We are opposed to every attempt to destabilize and to subvert the international, the constitutional order and the civic and military unity and destroy the work that was initiated by Commander Hugo Chavez Frias and continued by President Nicolas Maduro Moros in favor of the Venezuelan people. We reiterate that the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela will always be able to count on Cuba's solidarity. We reaffirm our firm support to the brotherly people of Nicaragua and its National Reconciliation and Unity Government, led by Commander Daniel Ortega, who uh, are courageously and proudly defending the achievements attained against the threats and interventionist actions of the U.S. government. We support the Caribbean nation's claim for fair reparations for the horrors caused by slavery and the slave trade. We likewise support the right to a just, special, and differentiated treatment, which is crucial to meet the challenges resulting from climate change, natural disasters, the unjust international financial system, and the difficult conditions imposed by the COVID-19 pandemic. We reaffirm that the brotherly people of Puerto Rico should be free and independent after more than a century of submission to colonial domination. We stand in solidarity with the Republic of Argentina in its just claim for its sovereign rights over the Malvinas, the South Georgia and South Sandwich Islands, and the surrounding maritime areas. We reiterate our commitment to peace in Colombia. We are convinced that a political solution and a dialogue between the parties is the appropriate way to achieve it. We also call for an end to foreign interference in Syria and full respect for its sovereignty and territorial integrity while we support the search for a peaceful and negotiated solution to the situation imposed on that sister nation. We call for a just, comprehensive, all-encompassing and lasting solution to the Middle East conflict, which includes the end of the Israeli occupation of the usurped Palestinian territories and the exercise of the inalienable right of the Palestinian people to build its own state within the pre-1967 borders and with East Jerusalem as its capital. We condemn the unilateral course of measures imposed against the Islamic Republic of Iran. We uh, reaffirm our unswerving solidarity with the Saharan people. We strongly condemn the unilateral and unjust sanctions against the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. We reiterate our unwavering support to the One China Principle and oppose any attempt to harm the sovereignty and territorial integrity of the People's Republic of China as well as any interference in its internal affairs. We reject the attempts to expand NATO's presence up to the Russian borders. The interference in, Russians, uh, in Russia's affairs with regard to its sovereignty and the imposition of unilateral and unjust sanctions against that country. We call for an end to foreign interference in the internal affairs of the Republic of Belarus and reiterate our solidarity with President Alexander Lukashenko and the brotherly people of Belarus. The United Nations cannot ignore the lessons learned in Afghanistan. It took two decades of occupation, a toll of thousands of uh, deaths, 10 million displaced, uh, and, and billions of dollars in costs uh, which turned into profits for the military-industrial complex. It took all that to reach the conclusion that terrorism cannot be prevented or fought with bombs, that occupation only leads to destruction, and that no country has the right to impose its will on sovereign nations. Afghanistan 
is not an isolated case. It became obvious that wherever the United States intervenes, instability, death, and hardship increase, leaving behind long-lasting scars. Mr. President, we reaffirm Cuba's determination to continue speaking the truth in a transparent fashion. However much this might be upsetting to some, defending the principles and values we believe in, supporting just causes, confronting violations as much as we have confronted foreign aggressions, colonialism, racism, and apartheid, and struggling ceaselessly for the greatest possible justice, prosperity, and development of our peoples. Who deserve a better world? Thank you very much. On behalf of the General Assembly, I wish to thank the President of the Republic of Cuba for the statement just made. The Assembly will hear an address by His Excellency Joao Manuel Gonzalez Lorenzo, President of the Republic of Angola. I request the protocol to escort His Excellency. Welcome back. And uh, that was the United Nations uh, General Assembly. 76th session. Uh, that was an address uh, by the President of the Republic of Cuba, uh, Miguel and uh, Canal, and uh, Diaz Canal, Miguel Diaz Canal. And uh, right now we want to listen to some music and we'll be back uh, with more of our program for uh, this week.
voice of uh, Phyllis Hyman, love to love, love to good to last. And uh, right now we want to move back uh, to uh, the United Nations General Assembly, 76th session. Uh, we have the president of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, uh, President Nicolas Maduro. Uh, let's listen in. Je donne maintenant la I have the honor to welcome to, uh, I give the floor to the head of delegation of President Bolivarian Republic. Thank you, President. It is my honor to introduce the statement by the President of Venezuela, Mr. Maduro Moros, before the United Nations General Assembly. Thank you very much. Quiero saludar. As we begin this new session of the General Assembly, I wish to greet all member states of the United Nations. I wish to greet the peoples and governments of the 194 countries duly present at this General Assembly. In particular, I wish to greet Mr. Abdullah Shaid, who has assumed the presidency of this General Assembly. I wish him the best of success. The United Nations General Assembly convenes us all every September Heads of government, heads of state, presidents, prime ministers, and the highest authorities to allow us to discuss our views and debate the ideas of a world that must continue to progress towards building a multipolar pluricentric world without imperialist hegemony. This is the second time we have met in the General Assembly since the COVID-19 pandemic struck. We are addressing the General Assembly virtually from our respective countries and from official government offices. I would like to greet all ambassadors 
and authorities who, in the midst of the pandemic, have shared their views, whether in person in New York or from their own countries, their positions about how we can build a new world of peace for humanity this century, a new world based on cooperation and dialogue, respecting the ideological, cultural, political and religious diversity of people throughout the world. This new world, this new human community, must be free of hegemonic empires. It must be liberated, liberated from any hegemons or any empires' attempts at economic, financial, military or political domination, liberated from those who over centuries plundered, dominated, exploited and oppressed people throughout the world with their old rapacious colonialism. They are those who are today attempting to impose new forms of colonialism on our people, new forms of domination, looting, oppression and exploitation of people throughout the world. That is why, in this General Assembly, overshadowed by the pandemic, from the very heart of our beloved fatherland, Venezuela is calling for a new world free from colonialism, a new world without imperialism, a new world without any dominant hegemon, a new world of cooperation, belonging to a human community with a shared des destiny. It is a multipolar, pluricentric world for which we yearn and for which we are issuing a rallying cry with all people of the world, with the peoples of the South, especially in the non-aligned movement doctrine, the South-South doctrine, our doctrine, our vision, our commitment and certainty. Many countries have strongly supported Venezuela as it has grappled with the circumstances of the past few years. Dozens of countries represented here at the United Nations have provided support, cooperation and solidarity to our people. They have listened to the truth from the voices of Venezuelans themselves. On many previous occasions at this General Assembly, 
and in other parts of the United Nations system, Venezuela has frequently spoken out against the ferocious onslaught, the merciless campaign waged against our country by the elites that have governed the United States with the complicity of the elites at the helm of organizations in Europe and elsewhere. They have sought to manipulate international organizations and international law in an attempt to justify their merciless campaign and criminal aggressions against the noble, peaceful and democratic people of Venezuela. We have spoken out about this situation on many prior occasions and in many different organizations and we are doing so again here today before the United Nations General Assembly in New York. At this session of the General Assembly in September 2021, Venezuela again denounces a savage campaign, a permanent systematic aggression waged through economic, financial, cruel oil sanctions. a persecution of the right to economic freedom, violating the economic rights and guarantees to which all people are entitled. This is a fierce assault on the right to buy what our country needs and on the right to sell what our country produces. particularly Venezuela's immense oil and mining wealth, which it has de developed for decades. Bank accounts are being targeted. Our gold held in the legal international reserves at the Venezuelan Central Bank in London has been seized. and billions of dollars held in bank accounts in the United States, Europe and beyond have been frozen. Venezuelan oil and mining companies are prevented from selling their products and opening bank accounts to pay and receive money and to trade freely as is provided for under international law. This is financial, monetary, economic persecution, which is systematic, cruel and criminal, and Venezuela is raising its voice here to denounce it before the people of the world. For years, we have faced threats. For years we have faced aggressions.
nevertheless, I can say to you today, from the heart of Caracas, where the liberators of America were born, that the Venezuelan people, with their great capacity for resilience and resistance, the Venezuelan people have risen. This year, 2021, is a particularly special year for Venezuela as we are marking 200 years since the victory of the Battle of Carabobo, which was decisive in our country's independence. This year, we have progressed from a cruel, painful time of resistance to one of recovery and prolonged growth in the domains of science, innovation and technology. With the spiritual resilience of a hard-working people who refuse to give in. A free, rebellious people who have flourished in spite of the challenges of the past few years. We have taken the path of recovery and holistic growth for our nation. We have chosen to unleash our productive strengths despite the hellish blockade, despite the criminal persecution and cruel torture of our nation's economic and social life. We can thus say to the people of the world, with bravery, with decisiveness, with intelligence and wisdom, yes, we can. We can stand up to these imperialist aggressions and prosper. That is why we once again call for, indeed demand, that all the criminal sanctions imposed on the Venezuelan economy and society by the United States and the European Union be lifted. Our demand is morally just, and we are making it on behalf of 30 million Venezuelan men and women. We are grateful for the support of many UN member states in helping us advance towards achieving this key goal of our country and our region. I would like to take this opportunity to underscore our support for and solidarity with the Republic of Cuba, the people of Cuba, whose demand that all elements of the economic and trade embargo be lifted have been supported by a majority vote at the UN on 27 occasions. Venezuela also speaks out in favor of justice and humanity for Cuba, a republic and a heroic people. Our country has successfully overcome all of these circumstances. That is why we would like to convey to you all the United Nations Secretariat, the Presidency of this Annual General Assembly, 
and all ambassadors and representatives of governments, we would like to convey to you all the official results of the report of the UN Special Rapporteur on Sanctions, who visited Venezuela earlier this year for a period of seven days. She drafted a very objective and reasonable report on the subject of these criminal sanctions and recommended that they be immediately lifted and that international law and international humanitarian law be respected, as well as Venezuela's right to freedom, to economic, trade and financial guarantees, and the full enjoyment of the rights to which any sovereign country belonging to the United Nations is entitled. This year, 2021, has also seen Venezuela making remarkable progress in two crucial domains, in the inclusive dialogue for peace in our country and in the holding of the 29th elections in the last 20 years, elections that are to be held on the 21st of November this year to elect all regional, municipal and local authorities through the popular vote, as our country's Bolivarian constitution provides for. This year we have begun talks with the business, social, trade and political sectors. We have opted for dialogue, especially through national roundtable talks on peace and sovereignty held in Mexico City, with the most recent round held on the 13th of August. But these are very important talks. They aim to bring even the most extreme elements of the opposition back to the negotiating table and to the electoral process. Those radical sectors of the opposition who tried a coup d'etat in Venezuela, who facilitated a foreign invasion into our land and who even planned to assassinate me. I can announce to the United Nations that we have achieved this goal. We have been able to bring these groups back to politics, to the constitution and to the electoral process. And now, with the support of the government of President López Obrador in Mexico, and with the invaluable diplomatic support provided by the Kingdom of Norway, with the direct presence of the government of the Russian Federation, and the assistance of the Netherlands, we are implementing a comprehensive agenda, enabling us to make headway in our social and economic recovery in our whole country's recovery through dialogue. I would like to thank the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, for his support to the talks in Mexico. 
and I would like to request the entire United Nations to get behind these talks in Mexico so that we can reach new agreements, including a comprehensive agreement to strengthen peace, sovereignty, prosperity, and comprehensive recovery in Venezuela. This is what I'm requesting, and I'm very grateful for your support. Venezuela will follow this same approach to prioritize dialogue in international fora as well. When it comes to the issue of climate change, as we have said frequently in the relevant bodies, we urgently require a practical and verifiable way to curb greenhouse gas emissions, to combat the warming of the seas, and to address all natural disasters resulting from climate change. We need verifiable and effective measures to prevent the environmental balance of the Earth from being knocked out of kilter. Recent years have shown us the dangers. We even saw widespread flooding here in New York, the host city of the United Nations. And we have also seen fires and floods in India, China, Spain, and Venezuela. We have seen major droughts in the south of South America. The Paraná River dried up completely, which has never been seen before. We must demand that the most powerful governments in the world undertake effective measures to reduce global warming, to curb greenhouse gas emissions, and to give people hope in the face of a truly worrying and tragic situation for many on this earth. Undoubtedly, it is the United Nations system. It is the path of multilateralism and international law that must be strengthened, as well as the sovereignty that people bravely exercise pursuant to international law. We need to build a new world, a new world that is already emerging in Africa, Asia, Latin America and the Caribbean, and the United States of America, a new world born again to put an end to the old hegemonies to put an end to some people's attempt to become the world's policemen and judges. This is the age of freedom, sovereignty, and independence. A new world needs a new United Nations organization, a new UN, so that we can all act in solidarity and so that we can all take the necessary rightful steps towards a new community, the new world. This new world is what Venezuela is clamoring for.
thank you very much, representatives of governments and authorities of the United Nations. Thank you very much. On behalf of the General Assembly, I would like to thank the President of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela for the statement just delivered. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the President of uh, the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, uh, Nicolas Maduro, uh, speaking before the United Nations General Assembly, 76th session uh, held uh, just uh, last week uh, in New York City. Some speeches were delivered uh, pre-recorded uh, by remote and others uh, were uh, delivered uh, in person. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment of the Pan-African Journal.
Welcome back. And uh, that was the voice of uh, Thelma Houston, Don't Leave Me This Way. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, We're here broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Today is Saturday, October 2nd, 2021. And if you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Uh, right now we want to move into uh, the Africa Live from CGTN, uh, discussing uh, developments in Africa and throughout uh, the international community. Concern Ethiopia's decision to expel UN staff could impact aid operations. Guinea's coup leader sworn in as president. What next for Conakry? Merck says COVID-19 pill cuts risk of death and hospitalization by half. Hello and welcome to Africa Live. As always, great to have you with us. I'm Richard Ntah, live in Nairobi. And for those of you joining us from across the continent and around the globe, we thank you for joining us. Let's take a look at other stories making headlines this hour. Egypt taps into international bond market for a second time this year. And Kenya's Olympics body heads to the polls after extraordinary session. Once again, welcome to Africa Live. Great to have you along with me for this hour. Let's begin with news out of Ethiopia. The UN Security Council has held a closed-door meeting to discuss the expulsion of seven of its staff members by the Ethiopian government. The seven officials were accused of meddling in the country's internal affairs. In a letter to the Security Council, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the global organization would push Ethiopia to permit the affected staff to resume their duties in Ethiopia. Ethiopia's mission to the UN is, however, reported to have urged the global body to replace the expelled personnel. This, it said, will allow the continuation of cooperation in providing humanitarian assistance. On Friday, the UN chief expressed full confidence in the expelled staff, saying all personnel are guided by impartiality, neutrality, and neutrality. Ethiopia has accused humanitarian workers of supporting the Tigray forces fighting its soldiers. At this point today, we know that the needs are great. I think that from this podium, we keep highlighting almost on a daily basis the plight of the population um, affected by the conflict in Ethiopia and how important uh, access is. I think yesterday we had uh, also some updates on numbers and and how much more access we need. Uh, The work of the Secretary General continues. As he said, he's shocked by the news today. Uh, The humanitarian work by the UN is impartial. It's important. It needs to continue. We need and we hope uh, to be able to continue this important work over there. Let's turn our attention to Guinea now, where the country's military ruler, ruler, Colonel Mamadi Dumbuya, has been sworn in as interim president. Colonel Dumbuya has been inaugurated by judges of the country's Supreme Court in accordance with 
a transition charter released by the military junta earlier this week. He will serve as transitional president before the country returns to civilian rule, but said he will not participate in elections after the transitional period. Dumbuya has vowed to oversee the transition administration, which has the mandate to draft a new constitution, fight corruption, make electoral reforms, and hold elections. Mamadi Dumbuya led a coup in the country back in September. The coup saw the overthrow of 83-year-old President Alpha Conde. I swear before the people of Guinea to preserve national sovereignty in all loyalty, to respect and ensure respect for the provisions of the transitional charter, human dignity, the laws and regulations of the Republic, to fulfill my duties in the best interests of the nation, and to consolidate the democratic gains, to guarantee the independence of the country and the integrity of the national territory, I solemnly commit myself on my honor to collaborate with the organs of the transition for the achievement and preservation of national cohesion. The transition will follow the birth of a new constitution, and this will restore constitutional order in the country. As lawyers, we want to be in a state governed by the rule of law, where the state is subject to the law. And after having heard and analyzed the speech of the president and the new head of state, we have been assured that the state will follow the law. Well, joining us for more on these, are, we are joined by African Affairs Analyst Achike Achude. Achike, welcome to Africa Life. Thank you for joining us here on the program. Well, Guinea's military ruler has been sworn in as president despite international objection. What message is this sending to the international community? I think uh, when, when um, a military coupist uh, I mean, sends this kind of uh, message, I think it's essentially trying to tell the international community that they cannot do anything to him. And I think uh, he gets his strength uh, you know, for that um, attitude, especially basically from uh, the internal dy dynamics of uh, Guinea uh, after the um, coup, a coup that has been largely accepted and applauded by the people of Guinea, most unfortunately, really. Uh, even uh, the you know, traditional um, antagonists of uh, military intervention in uh, democratic societies, uh, the civil society, uh, would seem to be very su supportive of uh, the coup in Guinea, uh, obviously as a result of the failure of uh, the civilian uh, you know, uh, president under Alpha Conde. Uh, and so, uh, unlike the situation that uh, we had uh, in Mali, where Goita have found it very difficult to midwife a transitional uh, arrangement um, uh, simply because there was a very strong opposition on ground in Mali that uh, uh, kicked against his further, you know, the, his headship of any interim uh, transitional arrangement. We do not have the same situation in Guinea, uh, with the vast majority of people being uh, supportive of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the coup. It becomes very difficult for the international community to move against uh, Guinea. Uh, yeah, so if, if, if uh, we, we, we had the opposition really to that coup, internally, you know, within Guinea, then it's, it becomes a basis for the international uh, community to engage, uh, you know, with uh, the, the, the coupists and uh, look for a way out of uh, the, the, the situation. And so I, I, that's what essentially what he's is, uh, telling the international community is that as long as uh, the Guinean people are behind him, he has nothing to worry about and there's nothing they can do. All right, uh, Chike, we'll talk more about that a little later. But that brings me to my next question, our targeted sanctions 
and suspensions of countries from some regional bodies do not seem to be discouraging coup plotters, as you said. Why is that the case? Yeah, because because uh, the sanctions are not uh, you know biting. Uh, if they were biting, uh, they, you know, especially if uh, they were very effective against uh, the participants and some of these uh, military interventions, you would uh, obviously uh, then I, I think that would have a telling effect. But what you see really would seem to be a, a sanctioning, uh, you know, or an acceptance of uh, this um, uh, behavior uh, that is an aberration to democracy. Uh, uh, because, of course, we know that uh, the, even the act of uh, coup making itself or coup plotting in itself is a treasonable offense in most countries, uh, you know, uh, I mean everywhere. Uh, under a military dispensation, when a coup takes place, the punishment really is death. Uh, you know, so under a civilian administration, if it fails, it is a serious punishment. But what has happened, I think, over time is the attitude, just like you said, of the international uh, organizations. They have not been able to actually find the right formula uh, to deal with these people, uh, to make sure that they are punished. But you see the arrangements that they have in place ends up rewarding the coupists. Uh, look at Mali, for instance. Look at, at you know, China and some of these other places. Ultimately, the arrangements that, that they have in place has a way of getting the same people who are involved in abrogating their country's constitution, being involved again in the government, you know, uh, in the transitional government that will lead to a, a, a new political arrangement, which they cut off in the first place. So it is this uh, uh, feeling that uh, they are being rewarded uh, for bad behavior. That, uh, that seems to have emboldened other people. And then, of course, the sanctions. If you target the country itself, uh, it, it's not the, the, the members of the junta that are going to uh, feel the effect. It is the ordinary people. And that's why they have carried on as if uh, uh, nothing is going to happen. And that's why others seem to have been emboldened. All right, Achike, uh, thank you uh, for your insights. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you for your time here on Africa Live. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Now, let's revisit our top story on Ethiopia, where the UN Security Council has held a closed-door meeting to discuss the expulsion of seven of its staff members by the Ethiopian government. The seven officials were accused of meddling in the country's internal affairs. Let's bring in CGTN's Gurum Chala in Addis Ababa for more on this. Gurum, welcome, welcome to the program. Gurum, what has led to this escalation? of tension with the UN. Well, we seem to have uh, lost Grunchala. We apologize for that uh, break in communication. Hopefully we'll get him with clear sound a little on, a little later before the show ends. Uh, let's turn our attention to Nigeria. Now, it's 61 years since the country gained its independence from British colonial rule, and a ceremony to mark the nation's biggest official holiday was held in the country's capital, Abuja. TGTN's Kalesia Mekalam brings us highlights from the ceremony. Let's take a listen. It's the customary 21-gun salute. Synchronized parade by Nigeria's armed forces. <laughs> followed by a cultural and acrobatics display symbolizing Nigeria's rich cultural heritage or part of activities at the nation's 61st independence anniversary. We are still together as a nation. It's a big achievement. There are certain countries that have not experienced the kind of challenges we have experienced and uh, uh, have fragmented. 
in the area of infrastructure, we have achieved tremendously well in the last couple of years. Uh, uh, Nigerians continue to, 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 to perform credibly all over the world in different aspects of human endeavor. But this year's celebration comes with mixed feelings. Africa's most populous nation has been faced with an array of security and economic challenges, from Boko Haram's insurgency, kidnappings and banditry, to inflation, unemployment and infrastructural deficit. We're not getting it right up to now. We have so many securities that by now we're supposed to have tackled all this. But because of, let me say, interests of some people, either politicians or individuals, that Nigeria have actually got it wrong in that aspect. Every Nigerian should be patriotic. That is the most important thing. If we are all patriotic to our country, we have our country first at heart, Nigeria will be a better place. Uh, most of the time it's, uh, it's uh, leadership. But I know with God helping us, we'll, we'll make it right. If we are united with one voice, one heart, one purpose, will make Nigeria become great. The Independence Day ceremony is a reminder of how various regions formed a unifying force to achieve freedom in 1960. Kelechi Emekalam, CGT in Abuja, Nigeria. All right, let's uh, try to get Groom Chala right back on the line again. Groom, hopefully you're there. Thank you for joining us again here on Africa Live. Groom, what has led to the escalation of tensions with the UN? Richard, as you, as you have said earlier, the United Nations is not happy with Ethiopia's decision uh, of expelling seven uh, UN aid uh, workers or officials who are based here in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and saying that Ethiopia has no legal rights, and uh, also this is going to affect the humanitarian activity going on in the northern part of the country. Now, Ethiopia is saying that, well, these people, uh, the seven of them, which are uh, supposed to leave the country perhaps in the next uh, few hours as the 72 hours time is dwindling uh, as we speak, uh, uh, have been meddling in the internal affairs of the country away from uh, their humanitarian uh, work. So, uh, so this tension has escalated. The UN asked uh, to the uh, change of mind, change of heart uh, from the Ethiopian side. Ethiopia is saying that it is standing firm. Even uh, in the last night's uh, UN Security Council meeting, uh, the Ethiopian ambassador in New York uh, has said that, well, you can uh, send a replacement, but uh, the people who have been expelled are, are not going to be reinstated uh, because uh, they have breached the country's law and this is a sovereign country and it should be respected. So I think this tension might continue as Ethiopia is standing firm and the UN is also assisting, of course, with the United States and others uh, that uh, uh, this uh, uh, change of heart and mind uh, should come. So we have to wait and see, Richard if there's going to be change, but we do not really think that Ethiopia is going to change its mind uh, of uh, bringing these people back to their jobs. Right. Groom, you, you briefly mentioned that the tensions are likely to impact operations of humanitarian organizations. Can you expand on that, please? Absolutely. Well, as you understand, in the northern part of the country, as a war is continuing, uh, uh, the humanitarian situation is not worse only in, uh, not only in the Tigray regional state but in the Afar and Amhara regional states as many people are also falling in the hands of uh, uh, aid uh, workers or uh, everyday uh, supply of aid uh, for their survival. So uh, these officials which belong to the UN uh, uh, 
have been facilitating one way or another uh, for the delivery of this aid. But the Ethiopian government is saying that, well, we have been jointly working with uh, the UN and aid work can continue without these people who are uh, accused of meddling in the internal affairs of the country. But we should uh, also uh, understand, Richard, that uh, every day the humanitarian situation uh, or aid delivery is being also affected because of... uh, uh, Situations like lack of uh, trucks uh, uh, which are delivering uh, food to the northern part of the country. Uh, Many of them, again according to the government, have entered Tigray and never returned. And that has created this uh, big shortage. Although there are uh, food supplies in different warehouses across the country, delivering food is an issue because of transportation. So these and also the current situation could uh, affect uh, oh, perhaps worse than the humanitarian situation. That, but the Ethiopian government is saying that work can be done with the UN stuff available at the moment at hand if the truck uh, problem is solved. Well, uh, thank you for the update. I guess there's no more questions to ask regarding the humanitarian situation, but is there more that the government can do, in your opinion? Well, uh, <laughs> For, for, the, for the moment, what we understand is uh, the government's work of delivering food is going to continue. The UN is also uh, insisting that it, it should uh, continue its job with the current stuff available uh, at the moment. But uh, every day, uh, food delivery is done with the government's effort because there is an organization dedicated uh, to do humanitarian work in the country and also the UN is an additional important hand to do that so this joint work should continue but uh, Ethiopia's uh, authorities are insistent that they can also do the job with the help of the international community if uh, the country's uh, law is respected so these two important things must come together so that uh, the humanitarian uh, uh, delivery can be uh, orchestrated as it's going to help the people on the ground who are affected by this war. All right, Grumchala, thank you for your insight and analysis. Let's leave it there for now. Time now for a short break. You're watching Africa Live. Don't go away. Here's what's ahead. The COVID death toll in the United States reaches a grim milestone despite widely available vaccines. And Africa fails to meet 10% vaccination target set by the WHO. We'll tell you more. Africa is a continent of diversity with varied climates and enchanting geography and a people so distinct but with a shared enduring spirit. We are at the heart of the continent. To bring you the untold story. Let's have a look. We celebrate Africa as it shapes its own destiny. Africa Live. Find your voice. Africa's real friends are those bridging the infrastructure deficit. China is doing exactly that through the Belt and Road Initiative. Road, rail, sea and airports are opening up Africa. A clarion call to friends of Africa. Hard infrastructure is what we need to get out of poverty. 
BRI African Voices Welcome back to Africa Live. Thanks for sticking with us. The United States has reached another grim milestone in the fight against COVID-19. The number of deaths due to the coronavirus has topped 700,000. The death toll is larger than the population of Boston. Driven by the fast-spreading Delta variant, the U.S. lost 100,000 lives in the past three and a half months. The New York Times reports the vast majority of those had not been vaccinated. Only 3,000 had been identified as having the shot so far. An estimated 70 million eligible Americans remain unvaccinated. Still on the U.S. pharmaceutical company Merck, it says it'll soon seek regulatory approval for its oral pill for COVID-19 after promising data. The company says the drug known as Molnupiravir reduce hospitalizations and deaths by 50% in people recently infected with the coronavirus. It's designed to introduce errors in the genetic code of the virus. If it gets authorization, the drug would be the first oral antiviral medication for COVID-19. Merck says it plans to make regulatory applications worldwide. While scientists hail it as a huge advance, they also stress the drug is not a miracle cure and should complement highly effective vaccines rather than replacing them. Well, the pandemic is now the deadliest in America's history, surpassing the 1918 flu. Some frontline workers say the death toll in many cases is avoidable. Karina Huber has more. The 1918 influenza pandemic was far deadlier for Americans on a per capita basis. But experts say many of the COVID-19 deaths could have been prevented because unlike 1918, we now have vaccines to protect against severe infection. Given the large amount of adults in America today who are still unvaccinated, and those are the ones who are getting sickest and dying uh, in this latest wave, Uh, We did not have to see this. The majority of recent fatalities have occurred in Texas and Florida, where vaccine hesitancy is relatively high. The two states combined account for roughly a third of all COVID-19 deaths in the United States right now. Intensive care units are seeing greater numbers of younger patients than earlier in the pandemic. The majority of those patients are unvaccinated. I leave two weeks ago to stupid Chicago. For a wedding, I was the best man, had to go, I flew, I get back two days, three days later, and I come back with the stupid COVID. Many U.S. healthcare workers who have been treating COVID-19 patients for more than 18 months say they feel burnt out. It's just terrible to see young, younger people this time around, uh, they have children, so it's just been typical in that aspect emotionally, physically, it's been a lot. Children are also finding themselves in the hospital at greater rates than before, in part because Delta is far more contagious than previous variants. Anyone could walk in a children's hospital today and see the dramatic impact that COVID and the Delta variant have made on children and adolescents, some with underlying medical conditions, some without. Uh, No age group has been spared. A nurse in a COVID-19 ward at a Florida hospital said she had one wish. It's depressing, and I wish everybody would get vaccinated so we don't have to keep doing this. 
According to the CDC, roughly 25% of those eligible for COVID-19 vaccines have not yet received a shot. Public and private sector businesses have begun implementing vaccine mandates to compel more Americans to get inoculated. Health experts say that's the only way to prevent mass hospitalizations and preventable deaths. Karina Huber, CGTN. Africa has failed to meet its target of fully inoculating at least 10% of the continent by the end of September. The global goal was set in May by the World Health Assembly, the world's highest health policy setting body. CGTN's Daniel Arab Moy reports. Wycliffe Muganga is a businessman in the Kenyan capital Nairobi. Muganga, like many other people in Africa, made an early decision to get vaccinated. But vaccine shortage on the continent has not made it easy. I'm a businessman who travels quite often and there is a likelihood I could contract the coronavirus. That is why I wanted to get vaccinated, but I have failed to get the vaccine. According to the World Health Organization, only 15 African countries out of 54 met the set target of inoculating 10% of their population. Clearly, the consequence will be uh, the continuation of uh, transmission across the, uh, the countries and uh, delaying, delaying the reopening of uh, uh, economy, delaying reopening of schools and getting back to a normal life uh, uh, in many places. So the, the, the real strong appeal here is to accelerate the pace uh, of uh, vaccine uh, rollout in the continent. WHO says countries that met the goal have a relatively small population, with 40% being small island developing states. Sufficient vaccine supplies saw countries like Mauritius and Seychelles vaccinating over 60% of their population, while countries in southern Africa like Zimbabwe and Botswana have fully vaccinated 14% of their population. As a self-financing country, Botswana sought to secure and procure COVID-19 vaccines using different available platforms. This process began as early as May 2020 and encompasses subscribing to global and regional vaccine access platforms such as the COVAX and AVAT facilities. As of September 30th, a total of 79.15% of Africa's vaccine supply has been administered. 6.67% of the continent's total population received at least one dose. 4.30% of Africa's 1.3 billion population are fully inoculated. WHO's target is to fully vaccinate 40% of Africa's total population by the end of the year. Daniel Arabmoy, CGTN, Nairobi, Kenya. Somalia has launched its first public oxygen plant in the capital, Mogadishu. The new plant will be used to help the country combat COVID-19. The oxygen plant, costing 240,000 U.S. dollars, comes amid a severe shortage of oxygen in the country. According to the chairman of the Hermerd Salam Foundation, the charitable organization that purchased the new plant, Somali's health sector will be able to save over $2 million annually. The foundation pledged to help in the operation of the new plant by hiring and training engineers. According to John Hopkins University data, Somalia currently has nearly 20,000 COVID-19 cases and over 1,100 deaths. The country's Ministry of Health says only 
about 1.4% of the population is vaccinated, making it one of the countries with the lowest vaccination rates. It is going to be a big relief for us. The entire country and the capital in particular depended on one private oxygen plant, which itself is small. It could not satisfy the needs of a public hospital like Martini, where most people sought health services from when they feel they have COVID-19 symptoms. Other private hospitals also depended on that plant for oxygen, since they could also admit patients suffering from COVID-19 or related complications that will force patients to receive oxygen. So the new plant in the capital will be very helpful. We wish to have other oxygen plants in the coming months. They will be installed in Mogadishu and their regions as well. This plant will produce 144 cylinders with each cylinder containing 50 liters of oxygen. In a week, it can produce about 108 cylinders of oxygen with each cylinder containing 50 liters. China's outbound direct investment into countries involved in the Belt and Road Initiative increased in the first five months of this year. According to the Chinese Ministry of Commerce, during this period, investment into the BRI countries expanded 13.8% year-on-year to 7.43 billion U.S. dollars. Construction projects in these countries span railways, ports, highways, and other infrastructure. In Egypt, Yasser Hakim looks at how space technology has become one form of cooperation. Egypt has been a focal point of China's Belt and Road Initiative. Chinese investments in the country have exceeded $7 billion, while trade is over $13 billion. Tens of Chinese factories have been established in the last few years, as well as huge infrastructure and construction projects, like the iconic tower, the business district at the new capital, as well as renewable energy and railway projects. Chinese cooperation in Egypt lately is not just only in infrastructure and construction, but it has also expanded to another sector, working with the Egyptian Space Agency. The chief of Egypt's space agency says the North African country is the largest foreign recipient of Chinese funding for space technology at about $100 million. There are two huge bilateral projects in the space field. The first is the Satellite Assembly, Integration and Test Center. The second project is producing with China a huge 350-kilogram remote sensing satellite, which we started in September 2019, and we have nearly finished the third and final stage of construction. Fifty Chinese experts are in Egypt, working on the two projects, which will help in areas of sustainable development, such as fighting desertification, locating underground water resources, and improving the environment. Space technology has become an important aspect of the Belt and Road Initiative. We are offering China the chance to assemble its satellites for African countries in our well-equipped assembly center. So, this center will complement and strengthen Sino-African space cooperation. We are also offering the educational satellite we developed for China to use it with African countries based on the Belt and Road Initiative. That's not all. The Egyptian and Chinese governments are expected to sign an agreement to elevate space technology cooperation into a strategic partnership level. Yes, Hakim, for CGTN, Cairo.
The news continues on Africa Live. Time now for our business segment. Here's what's ahead. Egypt taps into the international bond market for a second time this year. South Africa's Mpumalanga province to soon boast the highest skywalk in the world. back to Africa Live. We appreciate your company. Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg joined activists from around the world for a Fridays for Future march in Milan as environment ministers met ahead of Glasgow's COP26. The young climate champions, inspired by Thunberg, marched peacefully through the streets of Milan to demand policymakers match rhetoric with action and stump up the billions of dollars needed to wean the world off fossil fuels to cleaner energy during a year that has seen record-breaking heat waves, floods, and fires. The proposals of the young activists include a transparent climate finance system, sustainable and responsible tourism, and the phasing out of the fossil fuel industry by 2030, which they want to be included in the agenda for the November COP26 meeting. Oh, let's turn our attention to Egypt, which has a tapped international markets for $3 billion denominated bonds. Now, this is its second year bond issuance of the year, joining a rush of emerging market governments taking advantage of low borrowing costs before the U.S. Federal Reserve starts tapering its pandemic stimulus. Yasser Hakim is with the details. The $3 billion issuance was three times oversubscribed by foreign investors. It follows another oversubscribed $3.8 billion eurobond issuance earlier in the year. Egypt's strong economic showing, financial footing and strong future outlook by international organizations give us support to easily cover the bond issuances. The money will be spent on basic necessities such as the ongoing national and developmental projects as well as paying off other foreign debt in dollars. The government has been aggressively tapping different borrowing mechanisms from the IMF and World Bank to euro, dollar and green bonds. Some fear this quick accumulation of international debt can be harmful to the economy, but others have calmed those fears. 
Egypt used to issue short and medium term bonds from 5 to 10 years. Now we issue 30 and 40 year bonds. These long term bonds with high foreign investor demand are proof of confidence in the Egyptian economy and less burden on state budget. In 2017, the debt, local and foreign, reached 105% of GDP. Recently, although we keep issuing bonds and taking loans from the IMF, but our debt to GDP is down to 92%. This shows that our GDP is quickly rising in the last few years. The government is still going to tap the international market again. It had approved plans to issue a still undisclosed amount of Islamic Sukuk bonds for the first time, expected before end of the year. Yes, Hakim for CGTN, Cairo. World Bank President David Malpass has been in Sudan for the first visit by the bank in nearly 40 years. He praised the country's reforms but cautioned against what he called political slippages. A transitional government and a civilian military sovereign council have been running the African nation since 2019 after the ouster of longtime ruler Omar al-Bashir. Naba Muhyiddin has more from Khartoum. Sudanese Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok welcomed the delegation and described the visit as a historic one. We are very delighted and honored to see you coming to see us at this very historic moment in the country's history. We are also delighted that you have chosen to deliver your speech, annual speech for the world from our capital Khartoum. Under Bashir, Sudan endured decades of corruption and strict U.S. sanctions. The United States removed Sudan from its state sponsor of terrorism blacklist in December 2020, eliminating a major hurdle to much-needed aid and financial investment. The new government made solid economic reforms to meet the international financial institutions' requirements to access aid and investments. Malba said, Sudan's transitional government inherited a deeply damaged economy and society that has suffered decades of conflict and isolation. He said it faced extraordinary headwinds. He also praised the transitional government's economic reforms. Sudan is building. A nation uh, is going to be stronger than the individual parts. Uh, and that's important as people see the, the, the supply increase and the shortages go down. Uh, that can happen in other areas of the economy. And as that happens, investment will come. One of the things that strikes me is the availability of investment from Sudanese people who are living abroad. They're watching the developments. They, uh, they, they, are, they are very pleased and very proud to see the country move toward, toward a peaceful nation. Uh, and so I, I, we, we are here today to uh, strongly encourage that process, recognizing that it's hard and that it takes time. Sudan has over $50 billion in foreign debt. The tumbling economy is now awaiting debt relief through the so-called heavily indebted poor countries initiative, HEPIC initiative, in order to recover. Naba Muhyiddin, CGTN, Khartoum, Sudan. Nigeria has recorded its highest export of agro-food items in the second quarter of 2021, and that's according to data from the country's Bureau of Statistics. The total value of exports of agricultural products rose to $403 million. But as CGTN Deji Badimus reports, there is still a downside for Nigeria as agro-imports still outpace exports. 
The agricultural export figures from the National Bureau of Statistics is perhaps a pointer that the government's aggressive policy on agriculture is yielding results. The $403 million export is a 112% increment over the $189.5 million recorded in the same period last year and 30% higher than the $309 million recorded in the first quarter of this year. The current government has made significant efforts to see that we revamp the agro-sector so that we can feed ourselves as well as earn more revenue in order to you know, supplement what we get from oil. Nigeria's leading agri-exports are cocoa and cashew nuts, accounting for approximately $153 million and $105 million respectively. Adeyemi Adeniji, who is one of the leading exporters of the products, says the country could actually do better than the statistics show. What you have just seen is that people have started changing their attitude towards exports. In, in actual sense, what you only see is it might have grown marginally because of the perpetual poverty. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, a number of reports uh, from uh, CGTN uh, dealing with uh, various aspects of developments on the African continent and in the international community. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for today, Saturday, uh, October 2nd, 2021. We've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, and we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to another edition of our program. If you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan African Newswire so you can stay abreast of uh, the pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. This is Abayomi Azikaway, and uh, we're going to be signing off uh, with the music of Wayne Shorter uh, from the album entitled Speak No Evil. And this is Abayomi Azikaway signing off, and have a beautiful week.